0: Now, our Father, we thank you that though our sins are many, your mercies are even more, that when we were foolish and living foolishly, you rescued us by your incredible undeserved favor and grace of the cross. And we want to share this forgiveness that we have found, this life-changing forgiveness that not only places our names in the book of life but secures us with the Spirit of God that we might know You in a personal, intimate way. Father, we know that when You save us, You have a commitment to form Christ in us, that we are to be made after His likeness in our experience. And so we know that process takes time and it involves renewing our minds. And we want to do that well, not just for ourselves, but for those that you would entrust to us, be it our children, our grandchildren, friends, neighbors, whoever it might be. So tonight as we open your word, we come to you with open and humble and teachable hearts and ask that you would meet us. I ask it in Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. If you are joining us for the first time, we are in a series on basic discipleship. This is topic number two, this is the third session. I'm not sure we'll finish it tonight, just because that first week we were off by about 15 minutes due to the virus. So we'll just kinda play it by ear tonight, and if not, we'll finish it in our next gathering together. Uh, We have several objectives, they're listed there on page one. I'm not going to read them tonight, but so far we have examined the doctrine of sin And that's an important doctrine to examine in the day that we live in because there's much confusion as to what is right and what's wrong, especially as our nation is being given over under the wrath of God that is being revealed. There's different kinds of wrath in Scripture. There's eternal wrath, there's eschatological wrath that comes during the time of the Great Tribulation, there's cataclysmic wrath that comes. at. Huge turning points in history, not often, but often as an example of how God feels, be it the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1 as the wrath of God that is being revealed, not will be, but is being revealed. And that happens to an individual, it happens to a group of people, it happens to a nation, it happens to a world when they turn away from God and they give Him no praise or no thanks. And there's a downward slide that is described in a number of passages. The most famous that most of you know, of course, is Romans 1. And three times over, God said He gave them over. And in the third stage, God gave them over to an adikamos mind, a mind that is not tested, A mind that is distorted, a mind that is depraved, reprobate, upside down. You could translate the Greek word in a number of different ways. When they tested a metal, they made sure it was pure so that it would be strong. And a mind that is depraved doesn't think right. And more and more we see that just on the news. You think, where are these people coming from? It's not a mystery. It's, it's an upside-down mind. It's when God lets a nation go. And it's not just happening to these United States of America, but it's happening worldwide. And when we see that, and you couple it with Israel and the land, 240,000 Jewish people from the state of New York alone have asked for entrance into the land of Israel between now and December, they expect all 240,000 to be received. There's growing anti-Semitism, growing hatred, and they see the writing on the wall that they can't even practice Torah and study it with a sense of freedom. And so they're leaving countries all over the world and coming back. When you see Israel being regathered, you see growing apostasy in the church you see lawlessness, you see violence, you see immorality, you see homosexuality. These are the things that Jesus said would be in place for the second coming, which reminds us the rapture is that much closer. So, we're living in a day where sin is not defined and clear. I shared one Sunday morning some years back, my daughter, and this was almost a decade ago now, she was a uh, they call a residential mentor at Clemson University. And my son, Jameson, who also served in that same capacity at USC five years later, they had the same training except it was worse. So they gather all these residential mentors and they're basically training them now how to receive transgender people, homosexual people, and not just to receive them but to affirm them. And of course, the most recent passage of a law by the supreme—I say a law, it was a judgment by the Supreme Court, but in effect, it acts like a law concerning the redefinition of sex. Not male-female, but far different, and that's going to have huge ramifications as test cases come down the road and especially if the Equality Act is passed in another administration. They've never had enough people to pass it. But if there are enough God-hating, Christ-denying people who serve in our nation, it will radically change America, especially now that the Supreme Court has ruled on how to define certain terms. But God is clear. Sin is a failure, as point one, points out to do what's right to the one who knows to do right and does it not. So here she is at Clemson University, about 80 RNs and she was asked. The, the, the person leading the seminar was asked, all the students, how many of you think that homosexuality is a moral issue? We want you who think it's a moral issue to come to this side of the room and those who do not think it's a moral issue come to this side of the room. And she stood there all alone. One person. Now, some people came up to her after. She said, I should have been over there with you. But that's how distorted the thinking is. We have laws in our books that are ignored. I feel for the police officers in our nation. (laughs) You guys trying to defend us, do what's right. There's lousy cops, there's lousy preachers and doctors and lawyers and everything else. But of the 800,000 police officers in America, most of them are not lousy. And I'll tell you, you don't want to live in a nation without them. (laughs) If I didn't believe God was sovereign, I would despair. But He is sovereign. He is on His throne, He knows what He is about. Sin is a transgression of God's law, sin is falling short of what should have been done. Then we saw sin described on point B. Most often it's defined in terms of actions. You can't read lists like 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians 5 and not come to grips with the fact that some of these things that God says are wrong are just wrong. It's either the Bible is wrong and it needs to be burned as a false book or it's true. There's no middle ground. in one sense, that's the beauty of the day that we live in. The lines have been drawn. You have to choose which side you will stand on. Sometimes sin is described in terms of attitudes. Jesus said, to hate your brother is to be a murderer. And, of course, every sin, point three, is not delineated in Scripture. But God gives principles to discern whether something is sinful or not. And we highlighted a number of them, what we call the disputable areas or the gray areas, the in-between areas, not on the negative commands or the positive commands of Scripture, but those non-absolutes. But there are principles. There's no verse in the Bible that says, "'Thou shalt not smoke a cigarette.'" But obviously, there's a biblical principle that says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you don't want to do anything destructive to it. God never says, thou shall not go to a movie, though some people think that's in the Bible. But He does say you don't fill your mind with trash, and most Christians don't acknowledge that today. So you don't want to do anything, one, that causes a brother to stumble. You don't want to do anything that can't be done in a clear conscience. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So a good rule of thumb, one in doubt, cut it out. Don't do it. If you doubt as to whether something is right or wrong, it's wrong for you. Don't do it. And sometimes the Spirit of God will put that doubt in your heart. What can't be done for the glory of God, whatever you do, whether you drink or eat or whatever you do, Paul says, it is to be done for the glory of God. And if my behavior is not honoring and glorifying God, then obviously it's not pleasing to Him. And then some things just appear evil. Some things are not evil in and of themselves, but they have the appearance of evil. And God says, abstain from anything that even looks like evil. Why? Because if you're doing something that's not necessarily evil, but it looks like evil, then you've sold your testimony. And what you will find as a general principle is that if you abstain from things that even look evil, you will guard your heart from a lot of temptation that people in this world run into, and I gave you some examples. Now I told you you could ask questions, and two people asked the same question this week, and so let me just answer it. It comes up on the Bible line from time to time, and they said, is having a tattoo a gray area? Uh, The text, of course, if you have a Bible, go to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus. And uh, look at Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 28, God said, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Um, So there are things in this chapter that are clearly part of the moral law of God and not part of the ceremonial law, even the next verse, He says, you not pervane your daughter by making her a harlot. God calls that lewdness, wickedness. Obviously, that's part of the moral law. So the question becomes, is having a tattoo part of the moral law? It is true that there were aspects by which God, as we discussed a little bit last time, distinguished the old covenant people by outward things. Under the new covenant, he distinguishes us by inward things. Now, this is not a foolproof test by any means, but sometimes those who lived closest to the apostles would have been exposed to their view on certain issues. And there's a near-unanimous voice all the way through the time of the Protestant Reformation And it's taught even in the church fathers, and it's taught today by Jewish people, at least those who, you know, look to the Scripture for guidance. Many Jews are in total apostasy and unbelief, don't even acknowledge the existence of God. That's going to change one of these days. But there was one unanimous voice that tattoos were something that God didn't want us to do. Again, you could debate whether some of these early or late church fathers got that from Paul who gave it to this guy, this guy, and got it to them. The early church fathers are those leaders who come into play right after the apostles die out, and they wrote a lot of Scripture. The later church fathers is the next generation after that. Now, it used to be true as a general rule that not everyone... Who has a tattoo is in prison, but everybody who's in prison has a tattoo. There was a certain deviant behavior that was often associated with tattoos. Obviously, I don't think that's the case today, and it hasn't been true universally. You know, a sailor might get a tattoo. Now, obviously, you could say that some tattoos are evil definitively. Somebody has a naked woman on his arm. (laughs) Well, you know, obviously that's not glorifying to the Lord. So you can draw a line somewhere, right? Uh, There are some people, it's a cult of sorts that literally has a tattoo, 666, embossed on their forehead. Um, You know, that's a stupid thing to do, but obviously that's not pleasing to the Lord because they're making a statement about their hatred for God. I don't think that's technically the mark of the beast because the Antichrist is not here yet. I'm not even saying those people couldn't be redeemed. But when the Antichrist gives his mark, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if the mark of the beast encompasses a tattoo. It's like our culture has become used to it. I would say this because occasionally I get a phone call from a college student or sometimes from a college student's mom. And their son or daughter wants to get a tattoo, would you call them? And sometimes I've had some students call me. I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. What do you think, Pastor Carl? And I say, I discourage it. Number one, when you get one, I said it's not easily removed. They can black it out, but you've got it. Number two, I said, My goal as a pastor and as a Christian is to reach as many people for Christ as I can. And the argument that if I get a tattoo, I'm being all things to all men to reach fellow tattooers, I think is a weak argument. I can reach people with tattoos, and I don't have a tattoo in my body. Now, that doesn't make me any more righteous, and I know hundreds of our people have tattoos. Oh, I know. I see them right up there in the papistry. You can't help but see them. That's our culture. But there is, you know, I don't think it's by accident. And again, I want to be careful here, and I don't want to be misunderstood. Very often when a young person is sexually immoral, one of the first things they do is they go out and get a tattoo. It just goes with deviant behavior. There's a a searing sometimes of the conscience that happens. And again, without a tattoo, sometimes if you encounter someone, I'll give you an extreme example. We had a gentleman here years ago. He was involved in the alcohol ministry and, uh, and he came to Christ. And I mean, this guy was covered in ink. He was scary. I mean, it was all his face, arms, a- everywhere. I mean, neck. I mean, he was just covered in ink. And you'd sometimes see some parents kind of <laughs> pull their kids a little closer. And I okay, I understand that. But his ability to win people without tattoos would be a challenge. I'm not saying God couldn't use them. God might use his tattoo marks as a platform to someone that has never had a tattoo, and he could share the grace of God and how it reached his life. Now, his course, as I said, tell me about your tattoo history. Well, he got involved in the demonic realm And so I don't think it was by accident that he had that much ink on him. But you don't want to do anything that would potentially hinder your effectiveness for Christ. So while you can debate, and Christians do, whether this verse is part of the moral or ceremonial law, I see it as part of the moral law, but there are good expositors who see it as part of the ceremonial law. In either case... I look at it more like, hey, look, I don't want to do anything that would hinder my effectiveness for Christ. And if I might not be able to share Christ because they have some preconceived notions of what it means for me to have a tattoo, now, those notions are becoming fast diminished. In fact, the whole doubtful thing, the whole legalism thing, the things that we used to address 30 years ago are not existent today. Because the evangelical church, for the most part, is just guilty of license. It's hard to find a church that's legalistic. They're almost all gone. And two, people call someone who has a standard legalism. Legalism is not necessarily a standard. Legalism is dealing more in Scripture with motivation, either in terms of your salvation or in your sanctification. Legalism, like in Galatians, is when you add a work to the plan of salvation, and then you're deemed a false teacher. Legalism, equally, is when a Christian thinks, and this was the application for the Galatians because he's writing to people who are saved… They didn't believe that salvation in any way, shape, or form was by works. They got balled up on the process of sanctification because of these false teachers who had come in. And so we do something with the motivation that somehow we think it will increase our righteousness, then we have a legalistic motivation. You could have a daily quiet time. You could share your faith. You could go into a prayer closet legalistically. If you think that that act somehow made you more righteous before God, and obviously it does not. So our righteousness is in Christ. And so anyway, I'll... Two people asked it. I, I give a far more 20-minute detailed answer on the Bible line. I go through a lot of Scripture. If you go to the Bible line, it's on every Tuesday, and Rick takes all those answers, and he catalogs them, and you can type in tattoo, and you can hear some very long answers and both sides of the equation, and that's where I might direct you at this point. Okay, tonight, we come to Roman numeral two on the doctrine of temptation, the doctrine of temptation. And so, again, there's kind of an explanatory paragraph of where I'm heading such that if you are using this and discipling your son or daughter, this is the overall direction we're going in. And this is what you'd want them to get. There are three forces that incessantly wage war against the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And understanding how these forces can function independently or in conjunction with each other is important in overcoming temptation so three forces that wage war against the christian the first is the world system turn to the book of ephesians for just a moment this is a familiar passage of scripture to many of you ephesians galatians ephesians philippians colossians right after first and second corinthians all right so ephesians chapter 2 and notice, we'll read three verses. It says, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. We're dead. That's how we're described before we are saved. And dead people, if you go and stand over a corpse in a funeral home, they have no appetite for food. They feel no pain. Uh, they don't respond to any stimuli. You can't command them to do anything. They're dead. And that's how God describes us in our lost state, dead in trespasses. We saw that the word, it's two Greek words bled together, literally means a false step. It is deviating from a known path and sins, and the word sin means to fall short. So in essence, he's saying we're dead in our sins of commission and our sins of omission in which you formerly walked, and by walk, he's talking about lifestyle here. When you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, therefore I implore you, uh, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which you've been called. So when we speak about a man's walk or a woman's walk with the Lord, we're speaking about their lifestyle. In our former lifestyle, we formerly walked, how? According to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. So we walked according to the world. Well, who's running the world? The prince of the power of the air. And he further explains, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And this word spirit is often used of demons in Scripture. Not exclusively, it can be used of God's people, but it's a typical word that is used to describe demonic beings. Among them, we all too formerly lived, how, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So God describes this world system, and it's not a good system. It's a, it's a bad system, and it's being run, it's being energized by the prince of the power of the air. The word energo, we get our word energy from it behind the world system is one who's energizing it. It's the evil one. Now, when Christians are living righteously and holy and they are acting like salt and light, they influence the unbelieving world around us. But the more that Christians duane and get weaker and less vocal and less distinctive in their walks with the Lord then something takes its place. And Satan has more authority to rule and reign as the prince of the power of the air. And he's energizing the sons of disobedience. So Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's a created, finite being. But he has great power. And he doesn't necessarily have to attack everyone. He can just attack a few so he creates a, a movie by a producer that he gets millions to watch with just a little bit of sensuality in it. But it was such, quote, unquote, a good movie, everybody saw it. What does he do? It's the Solzhenitsyn frog in the kettle syndrome. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you remember him? He said, you take a frog and you're dropping him hot water, he'll jump right out. But if you put him in a cold pot of water and turn the burner up low, eventually he'll boil to death. And that's basically what can happen to people, is they get used to certain things, but they don't recognize that there is someone who's working behind this age. And so, what's the solution? Point two, the solution is not to love the world. And so, 1 John 2 15 and 17, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And again, he's not talking about the people of the world. For God so loved the world, he's talking about the world system, the world's values, those values that are antithetical to God's word. Don't love the world. And so sometimes we need to just step back and say, well, what are the people of this world really love? And the more depraved and fallen a culture gets away from God, you've got a real clear answer of some of the things that you shouldn't do. Jesus said the things that are highly esteemed by men are detestable to God. Don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, he's talking about the world system. Terms have to be defined. Paul, for instance, says God has given us all things To enjoy, same Greek word. But here he's telling us, don't love the things of the world, the the value system of the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. And also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. So the solution to dealing with the world system is not to love it. Guard yourself, guard your heart. How do you you know what's pleasing to the Lord and what's not? You got to be in this book. You have to be renewing your mind daily. And that's why the church in America is fundamentally weak, the evangelical church. Because you can't feed the saints on a 15 minute sermon, you can't feed the people of God on fun little, cute little illustrations. They need truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And that's what Satan has done to the evangelical church. He's convinced them that Scripture is not sufficient. So we go to outside sources. It started subtly in the 80s and 90s, as seminaries more and more left and departed from teaching seminarians' expository preaching to giving them counseling degrees and counseling courses. And most of the Christian counseling today is nothing but sheer nonsense. But what is he doing? He's trying to weaken the church, and so we saw the seeker-sensitive movement come through, and we said, "Well, if we're going to fill our churches, we need to make them feel good when they come." And so we compromised expository preaching for drama and rock music and all these other things. And what happened? It weakened the church. It's been utter disaster. And so while we've had the largest churches in the history of America, we have the most wicked culture in our, our nation's history. And it's not by accident. Look at the second force. The second force is the flesh. The flesh, our fallen, sinful nature, remains in opposition to our new nature, given it our second birth. So we spoke a little bit about this and another rabbit trail we went down, so I won't hit it too hard tonight, but remember Paul said, the good that I wish I do not do, I do the very thing I don't wish to do. And he speaks of this war that only the born-again believer experiences. He says, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh is in opposition to the Spirit. Why? So that you may not do the things that you please. That opposition, that war within is not there in the same way in the unbeliever. Initially, it's there through his conscience. But with time, the unbeliever's conscience, as it is compromised, becomes seared. It becomes calloused. There's different kinds and descriptions of consciences in the New Testament. Paul speaks about the believer who has a good conscience. He speaks about the unbeliever who can have an evil conscience. And that's the end of walking down the road of evil. And so we saw this case, I won't even go into it today. Guy who murdered these dear people, and they say he had 220 felonies and he started when he was 12. That's an evil conscience. When you call good evil and evil good. And more and more, our nation, our leaders, It's a good thing to have an abortion, they'll say. It's a good thing to protect that right for a woman. God says it's evil. It's a good thing to protect transgender people. I don't want to do any harm to transgender or homosexual people. But with this new Supreme Court decision, we will face it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When some transgender fellow shows up at our church and wants to go into the woman's room. And our deacons say, you can't go in there, pal. You're discriminating against me. You better believe it. There's huge implications. Now, they say, well, we've got religious safeguard clauses. It will be no different than what Bob Jones University did. Now, they had a terrible policy years ago, and they had their tax exempt status removed for years, and then they changed their policy. But this, because they've made transgenderism and gayness part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, now it's a civil rights issue, and it's not. The things that Dr. King fought for have nothing to do with this nonsense. But these are the things that we're dealing with. And so for the believer, when he's born again, so that he may not do the things that he pleases, why? Because there's this war within that the unregenerate person doesn't feel. But God wants us to feel it because he doesn't want us to walk by the flesh. And again, the term flesh is used sometimes to describe the skin that covers your skeletal frame. Sometimes it's used, like in 2 Corinthians 5, to describe a worldly point of view. We no longer look at people after the flesh or by the way the world sees them. But most often the term sark, flesh, is used to describe this sinful fallen nature within. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. It bears apples because it's an apple tree. And so by nature... We are sinful. In sin did my mother conceive me. David will write in Psalm 51. In Psalm 54, it says, we go astray from birth. And so we're born with this fallen nature. So what's the solution? Look at the solution. The solution is to make no provision for the flesh and to walk in the power of the Spirit. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 13. This is a verse everyone should memorize. I'm sure I'll put it in my list of 100 That I'll give you when we get to that section. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh, the sinful nature, in regards to its loss. So the solution is to make no provision for the flesh and to walk according to the Spirit. Now, that will mean different things for different people. Someone's got a problem with porn, it might mean no computer. It might mean for them no TV because it only takes one semi-sexual movie that wants to bring them right back into the pit. There was a guy who, 32 years old, came into the office. We didn't even have a building yet. We were across the street where this new apartment complex is. That's the land we used to own. When I first came as a pastor, and I said, this land is too small. It's only eight acres we're going to be boxed in. And nobody believed me, but eventually they did, and God provided a new spot. But I remember we had a little house in the back of that property, and this fellow came in, and he said, Pastor Carl, I started drinking when I was six or seven. I said, six or seven? So said, my parents, they drink. And my dad especially, when I was six and seven, he'd just give me the leftover whiskey at the bottom of the glass. He said, by the time I was 12, I was hooked on alcohol. And he said, as far as I know, I've been drunk almost every day of my life since I was 12. Is there any hope for me? Yes. (laughs) And I shared the gospel with him. He found Christ as his savior. I said, Jeff, you you need some like focused attention that I can't give you as a pastor. I can't babysit you 24 seven and you need kind of a, you know, crash course on how to make no provision for the flesh. So I sent him up to Lynchburg, Virginia. Dr. Falwell had started a home for drunkard men, so that they could learn the principles and he went there for 90 days and he came back a changed guy. He fell about eight months later. I said, Jeff, why don't you go back again? So he went back again and and then when he came back, I said, Jeff, so let's kind of walk through how you fell this last time. And so we agreed and he agreed that he could not go. There used to be down the road here a Bilo. You remember that, Anthony, that little Bilo in that shopping center? And that was our big supermarket. You know, originally when we came, there was a Walmart, but there was no supermarket in it. It was just kind of a crummy, beat-up store, and I think they turned that into a Best Buy, and that's gone now too. I think they went out of business or something. But, so this was a major market. He said, Pastor Carl, I can't go into that supermarket without being tempted to go on that beer aisle and to buy alcohol. I said, then, Jeff, for you to make no provision for the flesh is not to go into that supermarket alone. You have to have someone who will go with you every week. And for the next five years, every week when he went to the supermarket, he had a church member or a friend or someone who went with him. Now Jeff's long moved. I saw him last about 10 years ago, and he hadn't had a drink in 16 years. Longer than that now, I think. And that was 10 years ago. And I hear he's still walking with Christ and loving the Lord, and God's using him to reach other former drunks and lead him to Christ. But for him... To make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Now I can walk; in, I could walk into Bilo, and I, they used to sell orange juice and milk in the same aisle they sold the beer at in that store. It was not a temptation for me. So what I'm saying is, sometimes God will say to some, "You can't," but someone else, "You can." So He tailors how we need to respond to the temptation. You make no provision for the flesh, and then you walk by the Spirit. There's a sense of brokenness, and we're going to spend like weeks on this further in this course of what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and to depend upon Him. The third enemy of our soul, so to speak, is the devil. The devil wages war against the Christian. Uh, turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. Go to the back of the Bible if you're new, Revelation, Jude, three short books by John and 1, Second, and Third John, and right before that you'll come to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. He says in verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, your enemy. I hope you know Satan hates you. He hates you. The devil hates you. He's your adversary. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now there's a lot of nonsense I've heard. No biblical basis that Satan's lost his teeth and his power and all that. That's nonsense. The Bible does not teach that. He is a real vicious fallen angels that has millions and millions of demons that work for him. And he can wage war against you, but resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So you have an enemy and his name is Satan. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to bring you down. So what's the solution? The solution is to respect him because he's dangerous. Uh, We could look up, I suppose, Jude verse 9, and on that occasion, there was some dispute over the body of Moses. We don't know what that's all about, at least not from Scripture, though there are external sources that address it. That may be correct traditions, but since God didn't put them in the canon of Scripture, we can't say for sure. But they had some kind of a dispute, the devil and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses that Jude records, and he said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael the great archangel saw that he had one that was so evil that he had to contend with, he didn't want to go in his own strength and power. He wanted God's power to be exercised against him. So there's a certain respect. I remember Dr. Bill Bride, he's been in heaven for 20 years now and the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ when they were once very conservative on target. I'm afraid they were adrift, but there are many, many good people in that organization to this day that are worthy of our prayer and support, and so we support many of them. But Dr. Bright used to say to us, he said, the devil is like a lion in a cage. He said, you go into that zoo and you see that ferocious lion prowling back and forth. And he said, you put your arm in that cage and look out. But as long as you keep a safe distance, he has no power over you. And so the Christian is called to respect the evil one. His power is real. He is the one who's energizing the world forces. And sometimes people say, well, the devil made me do it. Someone called in yesterday in the Bible line about Jimmy Swaggart and some new book he wrote. Said the new book he wrote is absolutely heretical. As you consider the source, I mean, back in the 80s, and some of you maybe remember, you had Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and they embarrassed the whole body of Christ. Because they group us all together. You know, those Bible thumpers. They, they all believe the same thing. We don't. And Swaggart was visiting prostitutes. And then on Sunday morning, he'd give his little cryomony act, and he raised millions of dollars and bilked the people of God. It was pathetic. And then when he got caught visiting a prostitute, he said, well, it wasn't me. It was a demon in me. So he goes to Oral Roberts, who's another wacko, and he built these praying hands. And of course, he needs money, and he says, I'm not coming out of my tower until I I forgot what that is, a million dollars or two million or whatever. I'm not leaving the tower until I get the money. And again, there were some naive Christians who said, well, we don't want Oral to stay up in the tower. He was on a fast, not eating, and they gave him the money. I would have said, let him starve to death. (laughs) So he goes to Oral Roberts, and he has Oral Roberts cast the demon out of him. It wasn't a demon. It was Jimmy Swaggart, who's carried away as James one teaches by his own fallen flesh. Sometimes the devil has nothing to do with your sin. It's just your fallen sinful appetite. Oh, sometimes he might feed it in that he's got this guy over here who tempts you through a movie or through some action or whatever. Satan is real. He's dangerous. He, need to be, he needs to be respected, but you need to understand he has his limitations. And if you're walking with the Lord, you can resist the devil. And again, we'll spend more time on this and how to do that specifically. We're just dealing with the broad categories here. You need to recognize also, we're to recognize he's a great pretender, right? 2 Corinthians 11. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his servants, Paul will argue. Jesus said every time he speaks, John eight forty four, he tells lies. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And so we are to resist him using our divinely inspired weapons. Again, we'll examine these when we come to the Christian and the Word of God. And that's, by the way, if you look at Matthew 4, Luke 4, that's how the Lord Jesus dealt with temptation, did he not? It is written, it is written, it is written. Those two passages in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And so we'll discuss how the internalized Word is one of the chief weapons the Spirit of God can use only if we're filled with the Spirit and we're not blocking His ability. And so 1 John 4, 4, it's noted there, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So that brings us to God's promises concerning temptation. God's promises concerning temptation. We just read from 1 Peter 5 and verse 9 resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So you can't say, well, this is unique to me. Nobody else has experienced what I'm experiencing. No, it's common. There's no temptation, too, beyond your ability to resist. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, which are two of our memory verses for this section. Look at verse... Um, go to 1 Corinthians 10 for just a moment. You know, I forgot my watch. What time is it, Anthony? What time do you have? Not that I preach by the watch. What time do you have, brother? 7.37. 737. I got a couple more minutes. All right. 1 um, Corinthians 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And so he's writing to the Corinthians and beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 11, he highlights some of Israel's mistakes. He starts with their blessings, and yet in spite of those blessings, nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well-pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness, Now, these things happened as examples for us. In other words, he's recording history to teach us from history. That's one of the functions of history. You don't erase it, you learn from it. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Let us not act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did. And we're destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble. You know, God puts in there the sin of grumbling. God doesn't like it when we grumble. He wants us to be a thankful people. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and we're destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, for whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. So you don't ever want to get to the point in your life where you say, well, you know, okay, Israel messed up bad. I'll never, I wouldn't do the idolatry that they committed. Well, there's all kinds of expressions of idolatrous behavior. Greed can be idolatry. Sexual immorality is defined as idolatry. So there are many ways to express idolatry. And if you think, well, I would never do that. Or if you've come to the point where you say, well, I would never do that again then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. You're a wide-open target. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Now, the way of escape does not lead us to a place where we escape all temptation. That doesn't happen until you get to heaven. The way of escape, though, leads us to a place, according to this verse, that we might be able to bear it, that we can endure it. Point three there, there is no temptation that Christ himself does not understand, that he cannot help us with. Turn to the book of Hebrews. So you're in 1 Corinthians, go to the right, Hebrews, it's the Jewish epistle in the New Testament written to Jewish Christians. Hebrews, and go, if you will, to chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, and look at verse... 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Paul says, we quoted it from Second Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin, Jesus never sinned. John, 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there was no sin. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus was sinless, and yet he can identify with us. Now it's called what we call in theological realms the impeccability of Christ the impeccability of Christ, the temptations of Christ that are recorded in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. And remember, we were told not to love the world nor the things in the world, the love, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. While Jesus didn't experience every identical temptation that you might experience in the 21st century, he experienced every kind of temptation that you experienced. Jesus was never tempted to watch a dirty movie because there were no movies. But even if you look at the temptation of Christ, they fall into those three categories in Luke 4, Matthew 4. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, whether it's turning these stones to bread. Now, that's not a temptation for me. But it was for someone who has led to fast and someone who had the ability to take a rocket and turn it into a loaf of bread because he's divine. And Satan didn't question that when he said, if you are the son of God, as we examined on Sunday, it's a first-class conditional statement in Greek written for emphasis. Since you are, I know you are. I mean, how else could he be unless he laid that kind of temptation on him? He knew that. The boastful pride of life, you know, jump off of that uh, pinnacle and you, his angels will take care of you. So every kind of temptation, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms of the world were his after he went to the cross. And we discuss this in the Revelation. How because Adam was entrusted with the kingdoms of the world, but through sin lost them, The second Adam from above came and through the purchase of his own blood now owns the kingdom of the world. But Satan had a legitimate right to offer Jesus the kingdoms of this world if he would bow down and worship him because Adam had lost him and Satan had secured them. Again, we cover that in the Revelation. But we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. You say, how can he sympathize with us if he never sinned? Again, the impeccability of Christ basically says that Christ was tempted not to see if he could sin, but to show he could not sin. His divine and human nature were brought together inseparably. Think of his divine nature as an iron beam. And think of his human nature as a soft piece of solder that you could bend. Well, if you could bring the solder and the iron beam together... Inseparably, the solder couldn't bend because it's inseparable with the iron beam. And so Christ's temptations were real, but because he was indeed divine, he could not sin. My dad um, could sympathize with eye disease. He served as an eye surgeon for 50 years. When he started doing... Uh, cataracts in 1950, they would bring someone into the hospital, they'd remove the cataracts, and they'd go through this process. For 10 days, you'd be in a hospital bed with your head with sandbags all around you. I mean, it was a different world when, by the time he was one of the first surgeons in the United States to do what they called interocular lenses. And you'd do them in the office, and you'd go home a couple hours later, and you could, wow, I can see... (laughs) While he never had that performed until the last two months of his life, he had a cataract done and the guy who did it on him was thrilled that he got to do it on Dick Brogy, who had done thousands of these operations, that he would entrust his eyes to this surgeon. While he himself for all those years had never had any eye disease, he could still sympathize with the thousands and thousands of patients that he operated on. so Christ understands, having lived and walked in this world and having experienced every kind of temptation that you will experience. He understands what you're going through. And, of course, the next verse says, Therefore, in light of that, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that here's a reason we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord Jesus, you understand, you uniquely understand, and so I am coming to you for your help to give me grace, and he is ready to do it. Let's stop right there, and we'll pick it up here in our next session together. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our Holy Father, we thank you tonight for Your Word, for the things that we've been pondering. You have called us to be holy, for You are holy. And thank You, Father, that as we learn more and more what Your Word says on how to be a distinctly different people. And so as we continue in these days ahead in our next session to examine how to deal with sin practically on a daily level, Like the disciples who said, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we pray, teach us to deal with sin, that we might please you. Thank you that you have declared us pleasing, and it is certainly our earnest desire to express our love back to you. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And As for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet a rich man was in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. He will see His offspring, He will prolong His days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. Father, thank You for this prophecy. Thank You a day will come when Israel will make this their confession of faith. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that we who have gone astray like wayward sheep, You became the sinless one who bore our iniquity that we might be forgiven and changed. Father, we see people all across our nation who are confused, and we know, but by your grace and mercy, there go us. Thank you for your intervention by the Spirit of God in our life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening up blind eyes to the truth of the gospel. May we be vessels that are clean, that walk in holiness and purity in the midst of a wicked generation. Thank you that men like Noah, though it seemed the whole world had turned away, he was able to raise a godly heritage. Help us in the midst of this world to live for Christ, to extend a, a message of hope and forgiveness before it is eternally too late. We ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen.